You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In America, we specialize in having strong feelings about everything and knowing something about a few things. The Bible might be what taught us to be that way. Some folks will tell you how oppressive the Bible is without being able to name two minor prophets. Others will say that America needs to get back to the Bible without being able to name three Gospels. Perhaps in a time and a place like this, we need some help just surviving the Bible. And I guess the good news today is that Christian Pyatt has written a book called Surviving the Bible, a devotional for the church year 2018. In this book, he gets the reader ready to engage with a collection of books that's at once direct and complex, frustrating and fascinating. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Christian on the show. Thanks for coming aboard, Christian. You bet. Thanks for having me on again, man. Well, I want to lead off with a pair of metaphors from your introduction. You want your reader to think of the Bible not as an instruction manual, but as a map. So talk to our listeners a little bit about how those two images set the stage for this book's project. Well, I think uh, it, it's sort of a metaphor I've held on to for a while. Um, so often we have looked at the Bible or have been told to look at the Bible as this list of do's and don'ts uh, for our life. And you do these things, you get X, you know, this reward. If you do these things or you don't do these things, then you get Z, you know, whatever punishment. And um, I think that that does a great disservice to the culture, history, language, and tradition uh, from which the Bible comes, traditions, languages, and histories that it comes from. Uh, It simplifies it. It distills it down. And the more research I did, the more I realized that this was more of a post-Enlightenment modernist approach to uh, an ancient text and that it was appropriated in a lot of ways that we're still being taught today and were taught as the original intent. Um, the problem is a lot of people don't even know how to get to that place with it. They know that when they try to read it, uh, it seems uh, hard to navigate, it's complex. Uh, There seem to be contradictions sometimes. So sometimes it's a relief to just have somebody say, hey, I'll tell you what this means. Right. But the thing is that you give up a lot of uh, control and you have to have incredible trust in that person to to be telling you um, the right things as if there is a necessarily a right thing. And that's that's one of the, the the shifts in thinking I want people to take in in approaching this book. I don't want them to look at um, the text in a sort of just a list, simplified list fashion of do these things and you're done. I, I want them to look at it as as uh, more like Jesus uh, was. You know, Jesus was a light, a path. Um, Instead of the X mark that marks the spot, it was more the illumination toward. And so I think if that's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, let me ask you this. I mean, should I call this book a devotional or something else? You know, I, I bristled at that phrase uh, at first. 
and the uh, publisher put that on there anyway. Oh, I know, but I'm, um, not, I'm not asking the publisher, Christian. I'm asking you. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I struggled with that at first, but then I realized um, that, again, I'm such a postmodernist in the way I answer questions, I guess, um, because it, it gets down to this idea of whether or not we abandon language because it's been appropriated or misappropriated in ways that we find objectionable. Mm -hmm. So then we have to claim new, uh, a new lexicon for things, or do we, uh, help recontextualize that language that people are familiar with? Um, there are risks to that because a lot of people, um, who would, uh, find the kind of work that I do appealing are going to look at devotional Bible devotional gross, you know? Um, but, but I decided, you know, they had a point. Um, and that as much as I talk about spiritual disciplines and the importance of getting ourselves, ourselves intellectually and spiritually fit, uh, on our own terms and on our own, on our own feet, um, that I, I decided, you know, I think that's okay. That this implies uh, a practice. It implies a discipline, and that that's okay. And and it is something to which we have to commit ourselves um, to some degree. Um, I have to devote myself to an exercise regimen. And if I'm looking for some intellectual and spiritual fitness when it comes to uh, my own theology and my understanding of the Bible, then I need to devote myself to that. And so I decided it was okay. Right on. Well, one thing that, that's notable right out of the gate with this, uh, I'll call it a <laughs> devotional, uh, is that it follows the Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, yep. And I mean, that's a number of things. I mean, one thing that I want to focus in on is that it differs pretty significantly from the schedule of sort of bankers holidays that begins with gym membership day on January 1st and ends with af after Christmas sales the week after, you know, yeah. Christmas. Uh, so, I mean, in your view, I mean, uh, what does that liturgical calendar, that lectionary calendar have to offer to 21st century read readers? Well, <clears throat> a couple of things. Uh, one uh, mis mistake, I'll say, or liability that we have in our perception of the world anymore is that it's everything's linear. Everything has a beginning, middle, and an end. Time is always progressive. Um, and, and that God is, uh, yeah, we are here and God's expecting us to be there. Uh, I see scripture as a little more cyclical. I see the world as cyclical around us. And I think we lose touch with that. I think there's an important rhythm to these cyclical rhythms. Uh, there's an important um, there's there, there's there's both an opportunity for growth, revisitation, enrichment, uh, depth in these cycles. Uh, but it's also a reframing of how we understand Scripture and God. Uh, thinking of God as a circle <laughs> rather than as a straight line, uh, I think is, is helpful. And also thinking of the text that way. Um, plus, uh, at least with the revised common lectionary, I, I'm not as familiar with the narrative. And that was another discussion we had of using that, um, was that it 
I think it offers these great insights into some of the connective tissue that holds some of the older and the newer texts in Scripture together, where, you know, say, um, Paul is referring to a moment uh, that happened with Jesus in which Jesus was referring to something back in Daniel. And a lot of times it's easy for us to miss those connections unless somebody helps kind of illuminate them. So I think that the lectionary by and large does a pretty good job of that. And some, and it also makes us wrestle with some of the texts that we might rather just avoid, you know, some of the hard stuff in there, um, rather than just sticking with the Psalms or the Gospels or something that we're more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. What in the world does my dog ate my Bible mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the excuse, and my son has actually used the excuse of my dog ate my homework. That's and, nice. And, That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, it's I'm not kidding, and he brought it out, and it had, like, slobber marks on it and punctures through it and everything. I was like, wow, your dog really did eat your homework. But, uh, you know, usually it's an excuse for a lack of, um, a lack of thoroughness, a lack of um, follow-through. And so, yeah, my dog ate my Bible is just sort of a tongue in cheek way to say, oh, you know, I'm just I'd love to get back to the Bible. I'd love to learn it better. I'd love to understand it. But I'm just so busy. And the reality is anytime we say I'm too busy, all it really means is that thing is not that important. (laughs) Um, I have other priorities. Um, And sometimes that's okay. I'm not saying, therefore, you're a bad person. Uh, sometimes we have uh, shifting priorities, but I think we should be honest about it and or at least, you know, be able to laugh at ourselves when we're making these kinds of excuses for why we don't understand it. And so, you know, one of the other things that I think keeps people uh, who are maybe resistant to the traditional dogmatic orthodoxical. Uh, I don't even know if that's a word. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was I wondering know. myself. Orthodoxiological, uh, you know, approaches to to scripture, we'll say dogmatic. Um, uh, you know, we we but we don't know what what other way to access it, and so that's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do here. So, oh yeah, well, one of my excuses is you know my dog ate my Bible, which is akin to I don't know how to get at this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now I'd like to say, well, now you do. And I've had a lot of response from people saying, finally, this is something that's allowing me to engage the Bible that I can feel uh, is meaningful and isn't doesn't just piss me off and actually lets me think for myself and mm-hmm. allows me to laugh and find it interesting. And I say, thank God for that. Right. And listeners, I mean, just to, so you can get, get a picture of what the book does uh, for each week of the lectionary calendar – the first section is labeled text in brief, and that's where uh, my dog ate my Bible appears periodically. Uh, and what Christian does here is gives you a nice little paragraph length entryway into the text. So, I mean, just as he just now said, uh, if you are a little bit intimidated by simply opening up a Bible and digging into, you know, 17 verses of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, Christian here has given you, you know, a very brief entryway. It doesn't replace actually reading it, but it gives you some things to look for. So it's kind of a guide to the text. So uh, it's something to commend about this book, to be sure. 
Thanks. Well, yeah, and and you can use it in one of two ways, I think, that section in particular. You can Mm -hmm. use it as like you read the scripture and like, well, I didn't get that at all. Um, so that can help you kind of interpret it, or you could read it first and, uh, you know, here are some things to kind of keep an eye out for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now I, I also noticed, and again, you know, we're talking about a structure that, you know, largely keeps the same parts week to week. I noticed that the prayers toward the end of each weekly entry have a very conversational feel to them. And that's something yep. that I associate more with evangelical piety than with, Catholicism or orthodoxy or other kinds of Christian spirituality. Is that something that you're carrying with you from your evangelical youth or have you found in, (laughs) or, or have you found in your travels a broader appetite for that kind of prayer rather than the more formal uh, book of common prayer kind of liturgy? You know, I like both. Um, but, uh, I love high church. I love liturgical church. In fact, I, I attended the national cathedral, uh, for the 500th anniversary of the reformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, that was about as high church as Protestants get. Um, (laughs) and I, and I really enjoyed it, but at the same time when I'm gonna pray, uh, just myself, (laughs) I'm not going to do it in some high church you know, sort of fancy pants. I, I, nothing I can say is going to impress God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why don't I just get to it? But you'll notice, yeah, I th- well, also, I think evangelicals do get some things really right. Okay, carry um, on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we partnered, Amy and I, my wife and I, partnered with a church up in Portland for a while, Christ Church, run by, uh, started by Adam Phillips. He was an uh, evangelical from the Evangelical Covenant Church. Now, he was uh, kicked out when he was too open and inclusive to gay people. But he carried a lot of great tools with him that allowed me to sort of see uh, some elements of evangelicalism in a new light. And I think that that casual, accessible lack of pretense is something that really— uh, people find welcoming and refreshing who uh, like the theology, perhaps, of mainline church, but don't ac- don't access the sort of formality of it. Okay. Uh, and and so, while the prayers are are casual in language, it, it's supposed to give people permission to pray however they need to pray. Okay, uh, say more about that. Yeah, we think that we have to do it right or God won't hear us. Um, and 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 really, for me, it's not about a call and response kind of thing. Uh, it's it's about deeping into our, uh, dipping into our truest natures and our truest selves. And if we would talk to a loved one uh, in a certain way, I think that's how we should talk to God. And that's how I talk to my loved ones <laughs> in those prayers. That's how I talk. So just I'm just being me. But you okay. also notice I'm still intentional about the words that I choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to find a, a single Father God I just want to in there. Oh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> uh, so I think the the theology behind it is sound enough. Mm-hmm. Um but the but with that doesn't have to come some high and mighty elevated verbiage. Okay, 
That's fair enough. And I, I want to stick with the prayers a little bit longer uh, because another feature of them, and I'm just assuming you're doing this on purpose because, you know, we, we, we were housemates for about four days and you're a meticulous guy. Uh, one of the things about those prayers is that they are addressed always to the Anglo-Saxon noun God rather than a more abstract Latinate divinity or a more particular, you know, Jesus, right? Uh, yeah. So talk to our listeners a little bit about the name to whom these prayers pray at the end of each section. Yeah, I, I you know, I debated about that. Okay. Um, I, and I, I think there are a few places maybe I said, like, creator or something like that, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and that's probably residual for me. Now, I got okay. rid of the fa- father, white dad, God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I do say God. Um, it, it's still in my it's still in my language. And I, you know, Fred Craddock uh, said something that I really, really loved one time. And he's somebody I respected tremendously. He said, you know, if I had my career to do over again, the one thing I think I would do is talk less about Jesus and more about God. Hmm. And I thought, you know, I really do love my underst- the understanding that I, I have these days of God. And I also really appreciate the humanity of Jesus, but... I have – that's one of those situations – I'm afraid I'm not answering your question, but um, – <laughs> That's all right. Keep rolling. Yeah. It, it's one of those situations like devotional where I have just embraced in a, in a new way that word because mm-hmm. I, I know like words like Christian and words like devotional and words like God and even evangelical uh, are, are ones that we've struggled with for so long. Evangelical, I'm still struggling with. Um, (laughs) but I don't want to abandon that word. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other words that we can use, Mm -hmm. uh, source, source of life, uh, Abba, you know, like, Hey dad or mom or, um, or, or divine source of all things or love or or what have you. Um, Mm. I, I I I really tried in this book to to be truly who I was, mm-hmm. but also not make it sound didactic in such a way that other people would feel like they have to do it the way I do it. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, I want to turn to some particular readings that you do because I found some of your moves fascinating. Uh, one thing, I mean, when you're in the uh, season of Lent there in the spring. Uh, you make a claim that suffering can be intelligible in a certain way. Uh, and since you and I both know Trip Fuller and you and I both know Pete Rollins, uh, I immediately thought, okay, you know, they might take some issue with that, uh, you know, for different reasons for each of them. They might say, you know, if you make suffering intelligible, you have made some kind of error theologically. Um, but, I mean, I liked your take. I mean, you know, the way that you lay things out, uh, suffering can become intelligible as a chapter in a good story. Um, so how do you see your project relating to theirs, or were they even on your mind when you were writing that section? They really weren't. Uh, okay. it was where, it was where I was at the time. And if I 
if I were to, you know, this is part of a series I'm doing another book for 2019 mm-hmm. coming out this, this November and another one for 2020. And if I continue and pass that and come back around to this one, I might, I might, you know, approach that, that notion of suffering entirely differently. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the fact is, um, that I, I, I worked on that book at a really difficult time. Okay. Um, I was basically out of work. <laughs> um, our, uh, you know, our relationship with church was in a real struggling point. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the political process going in ways that I found, uh, a, a depressing, if not terrifying. Um, and so it was palpable to me. Um, and, and, but I didn't also want to make the book, you know, too self-referential. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what you mean when you say intelligible per se, but I, I, I wasn't, I really did not write this book with self-consciousness of any peer reading it and saying, oh, well, you got that right. I really didn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, there really isn't a blueprint for this kind of a book that I've found. So I wrote it how I felt it truly needed to be written in my own heart and in my own mind. And, uh, you know, some people are going to like it, some won't. Right. Um, well, let me read the passage to you because I, I do want to yeah, hear yeah. more let from me you on it. Yeah. All right. So it's on page 98 in the book. Uh, it is, let me look here, uh, the lectionary text for February 25th, 2018. And here's the paragraph. Quote, I want to clarify that I'm not slipping into any lazy thinking of everything happens for a reason as I think that divests us of responsibility for our own choices, and it also places God in a position of playing chess with our lives. However, I do believe that given enough time, vision, wisdom, and perspective, almost everything can be made sense of, end quote. So, like I said, I mean, you know, uh, when I read that, because I, you know, I interviewed uh, Pete about one of his books, I, I think The Divine Magician, a couple years ago, and, uh, you know, he is very adamant that, uh, you know, to make sense of suffering is to make it something other than suffering. Okay. Well, so the difference in our press, first of all, you know, he's probably going to be a little more nihilistic about that than I would be. Um, and if that's a fair uh, approach, I don't, I don't know how he would distinguish it. What I, what I don't mean is now I understand why that happened to me then. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't understand it now, but now I understand it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, in, mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't mean that. What I mean is that time, distance, healing, and experience recontextualizes previous experiences in what in in ways that we can um, find value in it. Um, it it kind of reminds me of. Carrie Fisher, she did this monologue that was on HBO that was really great mm-hmm. um, about her, you know, just tremendous drug use and some really horrible times in her life. But she was telling it and like she was laughing and people in the audience were laughing. It was funny. And she was, you know, she was talking about the the difference between humor and suffering or humor and tragedy is location, location, location. Mm-hmm. So, so the further we get from suffering, uh, the more 
we see it in a larger context. One, that we, we simply were able to survive it. And, and that our suffering helps make us who we are as much, if not more, than our triumphs, our, our bounty. Um, mm-hmm. I'm certainly more mindful when I'm suffering <laughs> than I am. I'm much more likely to take for granted my life when I'm not suffering, which doesn't mean that I welcome and look for suffering. I'm not a mm-hmm. martyr. But I do think that there can be good that comes out of it. I think, uh, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, you know, the Buddhist who also uh, writes a lot about Jesus, talked about um, the flower that grows in a garbage heap. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, it's really easy to look at the, uh, the flower and say, oh, look, it transcended its environment and became something amazing. But the fact is, he says, that flower needed that garbage heap too. Hmm. Uh, I, I embrace the, uh, the Buddhist idea that life is suffering. We are made alive by our struggle um, as much as we are anything else. Does that does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that, that, that's making some sense. And again, you know, I'm... Like I said, I'm interested just because you and I uh, share some of the same friends that have some very distinct ideas on this. Uh, right. You know, the extent to which they are part of that, and they don't seem to have been part of it, and that is perfectly all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to move on, though, and, and give our, our listeners, uh, again, you know, just a, a view of some of your readings here. Uh, in your Easter section, uh, you have a fascinating reading of resurrection as a theological term. When I think of resurrection, I'll just go ahead and lay my cards down here. I think of it as a disruptive moment in the life of God with the world, something that shatters expectations in a discrete moment. Your reading, on the other hand, and I found this, you know, like I said, fascinating to read, is that resurrection is a trajectory of a lifetime or even of a history that bends a certain way but takes its time doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, let me ask you this, just because our listeners have heard me talk about uh, you know, the grand event resurrection, what would you say to commend that reading of resurrection as a process to listeners that might be skeptical as I tend to be of that kind of reading? Sure. Well, I, and I, I, I guess I would, I would have to qualify that it's not mm-hmm. to the exclusion of the more like Caputo type uh, approach to that, you know, the mm-hmm. the event as disruption, as uh, and I would say revelatory disruption, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's not to the exclusion of that because I think there's value too, and I can only put so much in a 200 word, you know, reflection on certainly, certainly. on that on that text. It's really hard to summarize resurrection in a couple hundred words, <laughs> um, but. The approach I decided, it was a choice. There are a lot of conscious choices throughout this book that do not necessarily – are not necessarily mutually exclusive to other perspectives that I may hold. Um, So if at the risk of that sounding obtuse or evasive, uh, it's true. Um, I, I embrace a plurality of truths, but in that, in that respect, I think the one that you're referring to, I think what I had in mind was more something that Frank Schaefer said to me one time, 
which was which, and he's a fascinating guy. You know, he wrote this book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. He loves paradox. Uh, he goes to a Greek Orthodox church, and although he uh, doesn't believe a lot of what they, you know, what they impart. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we talked one time about my struggle with resurrection, and he said the resurrection was absolutely necessary. And I said, I said, explain that to me, because I said, you know, to me, the life of Jesus was necessary. The, the. The, the 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 death and 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 resurrection of Jesus was is more about well the death both the death the execution and the resurrection of Jesus are more about us than they are about him um, which I guess he, he would might also say well there you go <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, but he said you know the Jesus first of all Jesus you going ahead and 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 willingly dying uh, was the only way that um, that we would truly understand that he meant what he said, mm-hmm. and that that uh, that that's important with respect to resurrection. I mean, it's one that I struggle with so much, but I think the idea. That I took, that I was sharing in that in that moment was, death doesn't have the final word. Mm-hmm. Um, that death is not a finality. And again, it's more the cyclical, circular understanding of life, death, God. You know, and some people may say, "Oh, well, that's kind of you know reincarnation hoobajub." And I'm not saying, "Well, you get reborn as a cricket if you don't do things right." <laughs> um, but I do. Uh, I do think it is a great disruption to our notion of of life and the the linearity of life and death. It it redefines that, um, and it it plays with it in a way that it doesn't. Hmm. I, I don't. I don't really know how much further I can go with that than that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you think a lot more deeply on a, on a lot of things on this stuff than I do. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, you know, the the historical resurrection was really what caught my attention. Uh, and you know, like I said, uh, I don't think of resurrection as a historical process. You know, I think of it mm-hmm. as, you know, by definition, something that eludes historical examination. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you took it, you know, directly into you know, resurrection is a name that can describe historical processes. I mean, I, I did. I had to. I had to put the book down and think. Okay, what would that mean for something? You know, that we call resurrection to have a historical shape. And uh, you know, like I said, I, I I don't have any answers to that. But I thought you might. <laughs> well, I I I think we do carry these constructs uh, mm-hmm. around, and and you know. One uh, one of them being this progressive nature of of history, um, this beginning, middle, and end, and I and I do think that that needs to be disrupted and challenged and confounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and because if you consider that, then that that certainly gives uh, you know the it, it kind of almost gives humanity the first and last word, doesn't it? <laughs> if if the beginning, middle, and end, if if we 
you know, are the, the, if we give birth and we take life, mm-hmm. um, then where, where, where is God in any of that? Um, and, and so I, it's not so much to me about the veracity of resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't need the bodily resurrection to have happened. Um, that's not necessary for me. Um, it's about reframing our, our seeing. Um, and, and so this is one, this is, you know, one, one way that I was seeing it that day. Okay. All right. That's kind of an anemic answer, but it's the best I got. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, I want to pull back and talk about the big structure of the book again, because one section of each, each week's, uh, reading that jumped out to my eye and, and really kept my attention through the book was the decoding section in which you mm-hmm. give sort of many lessons on key place names, characters, religious terms within, you know, each week's readings. So structurally, mm-hmm. what I found fascinating about this is that it puts a premium on the particularity of the Bible as an alien text, something that actually needs decoding in the first place, uh, rather than being, you know, merely decorative stuff that, you know, we can dispense with and just get to the abstract, um, I don't even know what to call a truth that's abstract, because that's that's how committed I am to the particular. But yeah. how would you articulate the relationships between these words from the other world and the 21st century reader? Why do we need that decoding section? I don't think we need it. I think people want it. Um, I think it does feel alien, and I think that's one reason that they're afraid to even pick it up. They're like, hell, I don't understand half the words in this thing. Uh, so if, if that's what you want, then use those. If you don't, you know, if you rather take it more of a, more of a a mystical approach to scripture, then yeah, you may not even need this. Um, and that's totally fine. (laughs) Uh, and, and, uh, you can have 47 maps that kind of lead ultimately in a similar direction. Um, this is just one, but, uh, I think the people in my experience that I have encountered and in my own personal lived experience, what I tend to do is just sort of check out when I hit these texts that have so many names and places and terms that I have never heard in my life. And if I can kind of demystify that for people a little bit and make it feel more real. It, there's this fine line and I, I get I get kinda I think like what what you're you're struggling with in some of this as well. I did I did too. There's a fine line between giving people accessible tools to a really complex body of of work like the Bible mm-hmm. and trying to to distill it down into some trite six easy steps to make your life better, kind of self-serving, self-referential, even prosperity type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's been done to death. Um, and I reject those sorts of approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I try to do is I look at it and go, where would I stumble with this? Where would I be like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to put this down. And then I'm going to try and do that, that work for somebody to help them feel more encouraged that they are not the only ones that don't understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, it, it's it's a tool. And, and that's one reason this is all broken up into like six uh, you know different sections throughout every chapter. Mm-hmm. You can pick and choose the ones that you want. You don't have to use every single one every single week. And if there's a week that you don't need this devotional book, then don't use it. That's fine. Um, they're available. They're tools in a tool shed. And, you know, not every time I need to work on my car do I need to get the sledgehammer out. <laughs> um, I, I would hope not. <laughs> yeah, but but sometimes there's need for it. So you don't want to have you want to have those tools at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that 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 was the thinking behind it. There's so much language that just doesn't make sense to people, and they do want to understand the particulars of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean, in sort of a midrashic sense, you can't also get the more mystical. Um, um, uh, understandings and layers of text. Uh, in fact, that was to me what Midrash was all about: mm-hmm. was getting the, the particular and the broad. Well, it's uh, interesting. What, what it brought to mind for me was uh, Robert Alter's uh, famous sentence that, uh, in order to get to the best of the Bible's religious content, the reader has to pay attention to the literary detail, mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know something that's guided my own work with the Bible over the years. So I, I saw that going on in those sections and I really appreciated it. So, yeah, I think, I think if there are, you know, if you give me a book and I'm just supposed to sort of, uh, you know, read it for a bigger, broad sense of the, of the, uh, of the, the writing, mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you that I'm not going to be disrupted if you black out every fifth word, you know, <laughs> I just, I just am. I want to see the whole thing, and I want to know what they mean in the context. Mm-hmm. So that's what All I try right. to do. Good, good. Yeah. Well, towards the home stretch of this uh, lectionary year's reading, uh, you come to Job, uh, and you know you don't duck that difficult book, and I commend that. Um, and I'm honestly, you know, I, I I've, I've discovered this habit, you know, when I interview people who write books about the Bible, I'm always asking them about Job, so I'm going to ask you about Job. Um, Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> um, what always throws me when I read Job and when I teach Job, which I do a fair bit, is, you know, the bit at the very end where Yahweh says to Eliphaz that Job has spoken rightly, where Eliphaz, Bildad, and, you know, Zophar have not. Um, mm. And, you know, I think that that, you know, paradox, you know, you've been talking about paradox up to this point, uh, fits in some interesting ways with what I see emerging in these devotions. Uh, so I'm going to kind of leave this door open and I'm going to do what I do when I interview people who write about the Bible. Uh, Christian, talk about Job for a moment. <laughs> oh, man. Should I be looking for booby traps as I walk into this Always. Room? Yeah, I figured. Uh <laughs> Okay, I, I think there are a lot of things going on in Job. First of all, uh, God could be seen as a serious jerk. Um, you know, God is this sort of petty gambler who is getting into this uh, "no, uh, yes, huh? I bet you" kind of a thing with with uh, the adversary. <laughs> you know, um, and it, and it makes God seem petty. Uh, if we just take it at face value, uh, God is also a sadist, um, almost for God, you know, to make a point, you know, to use someone as an object lesson. And on also, yeah, you know, 
Job gets all his uh, stuff and then some back at the end, right? He gets blessed with all this plenty, all this bounty. But what about all the people who suffered and like even died in Job? What did they do? Um, There's all this collateral damage in Job that is horrible. So to me, what uh, there is one question that basically is framing the entire book of Job, which is why if I am trying to do the best I freaking can, do bad things still happen to me? Uh, you know, as a, I, I can't remember which uh, rabbi wrote it, but there was a book, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Oh, I feel like I was Kushner, but I'm not 100% on that. I think it was Kushner, yeah. So um, I think that that's a, a perennial question that we struggle with. You know, why is it that I'm being good I'm trying really hard to do the right thing, and this and I lost my job, and this guy over here who's a complete dick uh, got a promotion. You know, why does that happen? Um, why am I suffering while they seem to not be? Um, and I think it's not so much about endure the crap that God throws at you, and if you pass the test, then – um, then God will make everything right again. I think that's, and I, and I also think that some of the, you know, that the, some of the thought, the thinking in Job is just off. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's saying that if you're, if you stay faithful, God will ultimately reward you. And I, I, I disagree. I just don't think it works that way. Um, uh, but, I think the idea is that it's all well it's all easy to be faithful and to try and do the right thing when things are going well. The true test of who we are is how we whether or not we we cling to our own values and what we claim is right when when things get really hard. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I find fascinating is that uh, Eliphaz says almost exactly what you just said is wrong about this book. He says, you know, Job, if you repent and turn back to God, then everything will be restored to you. And Yahweh says at the end of the book, no, he was wrong. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. it actually and happens. Yet, <laughs> so again, that's well, honestly, I mean, I, just because I'm a booger, I mean, that's why I love teaching that book so much. Because, uh, you know, if a student thinks that... Uh, the answer is at hand. Uh, there's always a part of the book I can point to and say, what about this? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's where I'm getting at. Uh, that's uh, where I was at that, you know, uh, we, we run up against these things uh, that seem uh, in contradiction to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I don't think we have to necessarily resolve those. Um, and, you know, but, but honestly to me, uh, what would be the point of writing Job if if it just all went badly? I mean, how <clears throat> I think there was an agenda in Job, which was stay faithful uh, yeah. <laughs> even when things get hard, because ultimately it'll all work out. And the reality is uh, half of that, I think, is right. <laughs> uh, stay faithful even when things get hard. Period. God is in suffering as much as God is in uh, relief. <laughs> but the, the content of righteousness in suffering, though, if we believe God at the end, and I tend to, 
uh, is precisely in saying that God here is the criminal and God is the one committing the crime. And that's, you know, uh, that this is where, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll talk with Jason Michelli and, you know, he and I will always come to loggerheads on this, but I say, I mean, that is, you know, straight up biblical testimony. You got to do something with it, even if you also want to say God does not do harm. <laughs> and that the reality is it, it, it for me, it, it's, it's, uh, it boils down to kind of like what Einstein says, God doesn't play chess. I don't think God did things to people. I don't think God mm-hmm. does these things to us. I think God is in all things, good, bad. God is in the light and the darkness. God is in grace and, and also suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, uh, God is um, the source of all things. And so I don't look at this sort of anthropomorphic conscious God making this plan and, and parting out uh, benefits and, and punishments. Um, so no, I, I do reject the idea that God is doing these things to Job. Hmm. Well, I will, I will relieve you now from being tormented with Job. You've, uh, you've joined a, a select, uh, club here of people that I've tormented with that. I do want to turn to, uh, one feature that again, re- recurs throughout the book. Uh, and that's the fact that, you know, the words, Conservative and fundamentalist, uh, when they appear in this book, tend to name them rather than us. And if you mm-hmm. think I'm wrong about that, please feel free to tell me that I'm wrong here. Uh, but my, my question that follows from that is, you know, to what extent could someone who self-identifies as evangelical or fundamentalist even, or conservative, enjoy this book? Wow. I don't know if they could. Okay, uh, go on. You know, we we at some point we have to make a decision about uh, who our book is for. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I have learned in that this was my tenth book is to stop trying to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think who this um, who this appeals to more are going to be the uh, spiritual or religious nomads. The uh, I hate this phrase, but the post-evangelical, that's, mm-hmm. that's ridiculous because you can still be evangelical and, and, uh, be progressive. Um, but that's also why I use the phrases conservative and fundamentalist because mm-hmm. fundamentalism inherently to me is a reductionist approach to scripture and to God. And I'm trying to do just the opposite of that. I'm trying to be inductive in the way that I approach these things rather than deductive. I'm trying to open up uh, people's vision and, and way to see scripture rather than distilling it down into a few po- p- points that they can just put in their pocket and carry around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do, uh, actively resist the notion of fundamentalism uh, when it comes to God and Scripture, and I think it's harmful. Okay. You can be conservative in your thinking and also have questions and doubts. And I think that's the distinction for me between fundamentalism and doubt and and conservatism. Um, I've met many thoughtful conservatives who, who don't say that they have the final word on something. But they incline themselves toward this this sort of framework within which they see the world and they see scripture. Um, but a fundamentalist, to me, at least in my experience, means 
you can distill this down to inviolate, uh, irrevocable uh, truth with a capital T, and there should be a period at the end of that sentence. Um, And that, to me, uh, I feel is damaging and, and just... I, I just reject it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I and you know this is not something I planned on talking about, but you traveled here, so I'm going to follow you there. Um, is that you know recent conservative books, especially from the Obama years, tend to frame themselves precisely as the people who have doubts. Uh, and it strikes me that people who wrote books from a more liberal perspective back in the George W. Bush years, when conservatism was ascendant tended to frame themselves as the ones who have doubts. So, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, that uh, the Socratic move tends to fall to the people who don't have a person in the White House. Right. Well, and I think that that does uh, create a sense of rootlessness, you know, in, mm-hmm. the, true, in the true sense of what uh, radicalism means. And I think that that is important. I think it's necessary. Uh, and just, you know, just like I was saying before, these necessary cycles of life, uh, these necessary cycles of, of politics, of faith and doubt, of darkness and light, of suffering and of grace, um, I, think, I think are necessary because it, it, inform, it, it informs the entirety of our being. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we may be inclined to cling to those things which feel more comfortable, I think we need those fallow times. I think we need those radical times where we feel uprooted uh, and we and we say, well, you know, how in the world can I believe in a God that would let Donald Trump be president? Well, um, how indeed? Ask yourself with that, that question. Sit with it. You know? mm-hmm. um, and that's a that's a healthy place to be. Uh, those existential crises are actually good for us sometimes. And not because God's trying to teach us a lesson, but if we truly are mindful and present to them instead of just trying to constantly distract ourselves from any discomfort, uh, then we find more of ourselves in those moments. Good. Well, one more section that I want to talk about. Uh, You usually have some kind of pop culture section uh, at the end of each devotion. And I I noticed uh, that either you and I watch a lot of the same movies or you were condescending towards people who watch movies like I do, and you actually watch, you know, more film people stuff. I'd like to believe the former. Um, well, we I, are about the same age, aren't we? Ah, uh, ballpark, ballpark. Um, but you know, I say this as a person who goes deer in the headlights when film people in my life start talking about movies I've never heard about. Um, but let me ask you this: I mean, you know, as you were writing those sections, when a movie struck you as spiritually significant, as you were writing these. Um, how does that experience of taking in a movie relate to your experience of taking in the Bible? Well, the, the most, uh, relatable, the pieces of the Bible that I take away and hold with myself and find myself going back to most of the time are narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a part of our brain brain that clicks in. Uh, in a story differently than a didactic instruction or somebody just telling us how it's going to be. And I I think it engages 
you know, both hemispheres of our brain at the risk of doing some armchair psychology there. Um, and, and that is to me the, my favorite kind of movie, a movie that tells a story, uh, lays it out and allows you to come to your own conclusions about some of the implied symbolism of it. Um, this is, uh, one reason that I, uh, I have a, a hard time with, oh, what's his name? The director who did JFK, Oliver, Oliver Stone, uh, Stone. He drives me crazy. Cause it's like, he has to beat me over the head with a hammer to make sure that I think <laughs> what he thinks. Well, if you have that little faith in me, then why, uh, you know, why am I even watching this movie? Why don't you just tell me what it is you want me to know instead of making me sit through this? to find out what it is that you're trying to teach me. Um, so to me, uh, I really love truth in this with a small T sense that is, is revealed, not dictated. And that is told by a vehicle of a narrative vehicle rather than, uh, just some list of do's and don'ts. And I think that's in the vein of what Jesus did. And, um, and so to me, uh, it seems that these sort of uh, allegories and and, the, and these metaphors that we find in our popular culture are us wrestling with those very same questions and those very same uh, natures of human existence that uh, that were addressed in Scripture. Good, good. Well, Christian, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about the Bible, lectionary calendars, or whatever else as we head for the door? Uh, I, I, th- I think the main thing is just don't uh, be open to the idea that it can be something that you've never thought it was before. And I don't I'm not telling you that, oh, it's going to be something beautiful and amazing and wonderful. And you've just never seen it like this since you until you buy my book, you know, buy my book or don't. But always be open to new uh, new revelations in in your in your engagement with with the text Um, and always be open to your to being changed by it Uh, and to. It's okay to look at it and go, I just think that's wrong. That just pisses me off. Uh, I think that's that's fine. I think we're supposed to bring our whole selves to it. Um, and and that that's 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 okay. In fact, that's uh, that's the best. Uh, that's 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 us bringing uh, the best of who we are, all of who we are, uh, to our spiritual practices and disciplines. And, and if this can be a small part of that, that would be great. Um, Amy and I are actually going to start a, uh, a podcast at the risk of self-promoting even further. Um, you know, we co-host the Homebrewed, Christianity, uh, Homebrewed Culture Cast together already. We're going to start a weekly podcast uh, in a few months here uh, called Surviving the Bible. Uh, that will be like a 15 or 20 minute uh, sort of discussion about these texts uh, based uh, roughly on the book. Uh, so if people want to learn more about that, they can also go to patreon.com slash culture cast and we'll have some more about that. We're going to do a video series a four video series with Trip Fuller uh, to sort of uh, get that started and uh, they can check that out and, 
and uh, hopefully they will like it. They'll enjoy it. Christian Pyatt, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. You bet. Thanks, man. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Uh, the book is Surviving the Bible, a devotional for the church year 2018. It's available on Amazon.com. Do they actually have copies right now, Christian? Yes, they actually ordered 800 copies, so they finally have it in stock. Um, <laughs> and we, we have sold out of our first printing, but they are uh, they are making more. So, yes, the, you should be able to get one right away. Excellent, excellent. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.